0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, the epistle of 1 Peter will be again this morning in chapter 4 in our regular exposition of this letter. This is the last time we'll be in this particular section in verses 7 through 11, uh, a, a section of the book rich with content for the people of God and for how we live among one another in the life of the church. And this also concludes a major section in the book, really the heart of the book, uh, which extends from chapter 2, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 11. We come this morning to consider verses 10 and 11 together, but let's read these verses in their context. Let's read 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7, on down through verse 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together once more. Lord, we need Your help to understand Your Word. And we know that You are pleased to give of Your Spirit to help us in this very work. So as we come now before this passage, We pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and our ears to understand the truth as it is revealed here. We pray that you would give grace and help to preacher and hearer alike and that this would be an hour in which we come to better know and to believe and to apply your word. Please work in the context of our consideration of this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said a moment ago, Peter is here concluding a section that began in chapter two, verse eleven. Let me ask you to just turn over to that page. I want to remind you of the section that was commenced there in First Peter two, verse eleven. There, Peter makes a shift in uh, his book up to this point and begins to focus on the conduct of God's people in their varying relationships in the world. He says, verse eleven, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beginning in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Peter begins to focus on the public conduct of the people of God how they relate to the world in varying relationships. So, in the second half of 1 Peter 2, uh, Peter considers how Christians ought to relate to the governing authorities, uh, to the emperor and to the governors that are sent by him. And he acknowledges that some governments may be oppressive in their rule over their people. Nonetheless, we are to respect and honor the governing authorities. And then at the end of chapter 2, Peter gives counsel and exhortation to slaves in their relationship with their masters. And he says there that even if some of you have unjust masters who treat you spitefully, still nonetheless you're to seek to submit to them and to win them with good conduct. And there we are given the example of Jesus Christ as an example of one who suffered unjustly under the hands of oppressive men, and we are to follow Jesus and His example as His people when we encounter such suffering. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter considers how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, how Christians should exist in relationship with their spouses. So first, exhortation is given to the wives that they are to be subject to their husbands. And it acknowledges there in the beginning verses of 1 Peter 3 that some wives may have husbands that don't obey the Word, their responsibility when they have husbands who fit that description are to love them to be subject to them and to seek to win them by their good conduct. And then of course husbands are told to care for their wives and to honor them and to dwell with them in an understanding way. And then in the remainder of 1 Peter chapter 3 we have now the camera lens zooming out from those domestic relationships to now the Christian's relationship in the wider world, a world that is hostile to Christians, a world that is hostile to God's people. And we are given instructions for how we are to persevere and how we are to live when we are slandered, when we are maligned, when people speak unjustly about us. And again, the exhortation is that we would be known by our good and righteous conduct, that we would suffer for righteousness' sake, and that we would live in a holy and righteous way before a world that is hostile to the Lord's people. And that theme continues into chapter 4, the chapter we're in this morning. Uh, There uh, these Christians are again told that they're to be known for their good conduct. They're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, from human passions. Uh, They're not to live as the Gentiles do in sensuality and drunkenness and all these other sins that are included, but they're to live for the will of God. They're to be known for their good and righteous conduct before the world and not follow the world. And what Peter refers to is the same flood of debauchery that they pursue. Then in 1 Peter 4.7, the section we're in this morning that we'll finish considering this morning, uh, now Peter is looking at the internal life of the church community, and he begins the section with this important phrase, the end of all things is at hand. History is moving toward the goal. We're in the last stage of redemptive history, and therefore there are particular things these Christians are to focus on and to give special priority to. So, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Christians are to be self-controlled and sober-minded for prayers. They're to be self-controlled in their life and in their thought. They're to be sober-minded. They're to see reality as it is and to live in light of reality according to God's will for the sake of praying to God that their prayers would be regulated by minds and hearts and lives that are self-controlled and sober-minded. And then we saw last week that above all, the matter that should have greatest priority in the family of God is that we ought to love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The end of all things is at hand. We're living in the last stage of redemptive history. The time is short. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, and we saw last time one of the functions of love is that it overlooks offenses. It perseveres even when one has been wronged, and we considered other passages that make that similar point. We said that one of the functions of love is what we have in verse 9, that love shows itself in hospitality without grumbling. Now we come to verses 10 and 11 to the whole subject of gifts in the body of Christ. That is Peter's concern now. How should we think about gifts within the family of God and how should we exercise those gifts under the edification of the body? Uh, The whole subject of spiritual gifts in the Bible is one that people often stumble over. Uh, There's been a lot of ink spilled over the subject of spiritual gifts, most of it uh, not typically uh, illuminating. It is a subject that is in our day fraught with misunderstanding and confusion. However, I think if you give less attention uh, to TV preachers and less attention to spiritual gifts inventories, and if you can avoid the excesses of the charismatic movement and maybe the overcaution of the ultra-reformed, and if you just study the texts of the Bible that deal with the subject of spiritual gifts, I think we will arrive at better clarity as to what the Lord's will is for us as we think about the whole subject of gifts within the body of Christ. Now, there's three very relevant passages to consider outside of 1 Peter 4. I commend them to your own private study. The big one is Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. There the Apostle Paul deals with the subject of spiritual gifts. It's actually one of the passages that's most neglected on the whole subject of gifts, but I personally think perhaps the most illuminating. Uh, And Then also Ephesians 4, which is a passage we considered. Uh, a couple of years ago in our series on Ephesians, particularly Ephesians 1 through 11, but really the whole chapter. There, Paul focuses more narrowly on particular gifts in terms of particular offices the apostle, the pro- uh, prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, teacher, but gives more instructions as to how gifts are to be utilized in the family of God. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 12, which is a major passage on. Spiritual gifts also. All of these passages should be studied in concert with our passage this morning in First Peter four, ten through eleven, which also contributes to the revelation we have on the subject of gifts in the body of Christ. So I encourage you to read them and study them on your own time. I will make only passing reference to those other passages. My errand this morning is to preach to you first Peter four, ten through eleven, and I want to focus on the very basic and uncontroversial instructions Peter gives regarding gifts in this passage to help us better understand the role gifts are to play within the family of God. So, I have two basic headings that I want to utilize to frame our consideration of this passage. The first is just to give general observations regarding gifts, all of which I think are contained in the text itself. General observations regarding gifts, I'm going to have five of them that we'll consider. And then we want to consider two specific instructions regarding gifts, particularly speaking gifts and serving gifts and what Peter has to say to those who speak and those who serve. So, please consider with me, first of all, general observations regarding gifts. I have five of them. Number one, each believer, each believer has received a gift from God plainly stated in verse 10, as each has received a gift. Peter assumes as a matter of fact, as a matter of course, each Christian has received a gift. This is the assumption of the apostle Paul as well in his reflections on spiritual gifts in those passages I mentioned before. God is pleased to impart various gifts to all of His children. gifts. Of encouragement, gifts of hospitality, gifts of service, gifts of preaching and teaching, gifts of exhortation, gifts of benevolence and charity, all kinds of gifts the Lord is pleased to give to His people. And the Bible teaches in a number of places that every single Christian is given gifts like these. So, as Christians, we're to understand not only has God given us salvation in Jesus Christ, not only do we have the gift of adoption, Uh, Not only are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but God has given to each one of us, God has given to you, God has given to me particular gifts to be used for the building up of His church. He has given me gifts that I might make a contribution to the work of the whole, to the work of the church, and that I might bring glory to God. It is an immense privilege, and we learn in this passage and others that no one is excluded, Every Christian, each Christian is given a gift from God. My brother, sister, you may feel very insignificant and very small. You may be ashamed of your background. You may have a very low assessment of your ability to bring any good to the church, but God's Word, my fellow Christian, would have you have a different perspective. Every Christian has been given a gift by God. Each one should think, I have a part to play in this assembly of the Lord's people. This body needs me. I have gifts given to me by God that I must bring to the table for the benefit of my brothers and sisters in the church. Now, it's important to say at this point that the gifts differ, of course. Not everyone has the same gifts. There are certain categories of gifts, and different ones are given to different Christians. And as these gifts are given to us by God, He determines which gifts are given and to whom. It's God's prerogative to determine what gifts He's going to give to any individual Christian. The gifts are assigned by God Himself, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have no reason to boast about our gifts, and furthermore, we should not envy another Christian's gifts. There's no cause for boasting. And there's no grounds for envy either. We should not complain about the gifts we have or the gifts we lack. They are each one assigned to us by a good and sovereign God who is building His church, and He's using jars of clay like us to do it. He's pleased to give us gifts that we might be included in that very awesome work He's doing. Personally, I've always drawn comfort from the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12. There, he imagines this body and all these different parts coming together, and each one has differing gifts. He says this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 17, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. He arranged the members of the body, each one as He in His goodness and His sovereignty and His grace has chosen. If all were a single member, where would the body be? The simple point being, brother, sister, the gifts that God has given you, He has given you in His sovereignty and His grace, and He has done so to fit you among the body. He doesn't purpose that we all have the same gifts. He has designed in His wisdom and in His grace to give differing gifts To each member so that we together might make up one body, and that we might mutually serve and help one another. That's the first general observation, I'll be more quick with the other ones. Number two, general observations about gifts, the source of gifts is the grace of God. The source of gifts is the grace of God. Look again at verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We see here that gifts are a function of God's grace and kindness toward us. He is giving us the privilege, the grace of playing a special part, each one of us in His purposes in the church. In His grace, He determines that He will give gifts to His children, that they might engage more fully in the life of the church. This is also how the Apostle Paul understood gifts in the church. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This was a function of the grace of God to give gifts to each of His people. Again, that God would give gifts to us in His church to use for the building up of the body is a function of grace. It's a function of His kindness. And friends, gifts in the church, I think, should be seen in a special way as God's provision for us. The gifts that each of the members has and exercises in the life of the body should be seen as an expression of God's grace toward the family of God here in this particular church. This is God's kindness to us to give gifts to the church. When God sends that sister with the gift of encouragement over to your home and she rescues you from the clutches of discouragement and despair, you should think this is God's grace to me through this sister. He has given her this gift and she has used it to snatch me from the clutches of discouragement. We should see that as God's provision. When you see a family in the church with the gift of hospitality and they bring us into the haven of their home and we find needed rest and refreshment and encouragement, we should think this is God's provision for me through them and the gifts that God has given to them. When someone with the gift of wisdom and discernment helps us in making a crucial decision. When a man gifted to preach helps us to better understand the Bible. When one gifted with the gift of exhortation brings the truth to us in a way that we needed to hear it and to see it, we should trace these gifts back to their source, which is the grace of our sovereign God. And moreover, if you find that your individual gifts are being used of God to bring blessing to others, you have no cause for boasting. You should think this is God's grace, God's kindness at work, even through little old me, to bring blessing to my brothers and sisters. These gifts that God gives to his church are an expression of his grace. Their source is the grace of God, and they are a function of God's provision for his people. Third general observation gifts are a stewardship from God. We're to steward the gifts that God has given to us. And in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Children here, do you know what that word steward means, what stewardship is? If, 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 if I said, I, I need you to do me a favor, uh, uh, Miss Jenna and I, we're leaving town, we're going on vacation, but we have this plant and it needs to be watered every day. And I'm entrusting you to be a good steward of our plant what am I asking you to do? Well, I'm asking you to take that plant yourself and to guard it and to water it and to cultivate it and to take care of it while we're away so that when we come back, the plant will still be alive, it won't have died, and you will have been a good steward of the stewardship that we entrusted you. That's what it means to be a good steward. And the Bible says that as God has given gifts to all of His people, we're to be good stewards of those gifts. He's given us a gift. We're to steward that gift and to use that gift and invest that gift for God and His glory. We see here these gifts that God gives to His church are given in trust. They are given from God to be used. Brother, sister, you have been given a stewardship in the gifts that God has given you, and I just ask, are you being faithful in your administration of that stewardship? The fact is, each one of us has been given gifts from God. Each one of us has been given gifts that we're to utilize and we're to leverage and we're to contribute to the life and the good of the church. And I think one of the best services we can do to one another is to seek to help one another uh, utilize our gifts well. Um, I I think that most people are depleted in terms of encouragement. Their reserves in terms of encouragement and help and, and affirmation are typically very low, And I think one of the most wholesome things we can do in the family of God is to identify gifts and graces in one another and to go to that brother and sister and say, you know what I've seen in your life, in your pattern of godliness, certain gifts that God has given you, I want to encourage you to use those gifts. I want to encourage you to be a good steward of those gifts that God has given to you. I just see that God has fitted you in such a way with this body that you can serve us in wonderful ways through this or that particular gift. That should be sort of the air we breathe here at Emmanuel Church, that we're seeking to encourage one another in our gifts. Paul had to say to Timothy, stir up the gift of God that is within you. He had to encourage him to be a faithful steward of that gift that God had given to Timothy. Well, similarly, nothing will sort of ignite and and fuel our efforts in serving the body of Christ like a brother or sister coming in season and saying, you have this gift. Use this gift. Stir up the gift of God that is within you because our gifts are a stewardship from God. I don't think the parable of the talents recorded in Matthew 25 is talking primarily about spiritual gifts. I think the concern is much broader than that. Uh, But the principle presented in that passage I think can apply to how we steward spiritual gifts. You know the parable of the talents, that that this ruler gave talents to particular ones, this one 10, this one 5, this one 1, and they're to invest those talents and to bring back a return for their Lord, for their master. And of course, two of them do that very thing, one of them does not. They take the talent, they hide it under the mattress, and it yields no return. Well, there's a lesson there. My brother, sister, God in His grace has given you gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. You're to be a faithful steward of those gifts. You're to think, I have things I need to bring to to, to promote the health of this church body. I'm to engage. I'm to bring to bear the gifts that God has given me to help this church reach maturity in Jesus Christ. I just warmly encourage you and exhort you, seek by God's help to be faithful in the stewardship of those gifts. We should all of us think, God has given me gifts to serve this body. Am I serving? Am I making sanctified use of the gift God has given me? Am I a good steward of His very grace to me? I appreciate Paul's words in Romans 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Don't hide them under a mattress. Don't isolate from the life of the church. God has given you gifts to help this body of believers. May God make you faithful. In the stewardship of your gifts. A fourth observation, gifts are to be used in service to the body of Christ. All right, this may be the most important thing I've said so far this morning. I think this is in our passage. It's also reflected in every passage on spiritual gifts in the Bible. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to what purpose? Why do I have the gift of exhortation? Why do I have the gift of hospitality? Why do I have the the gift of preaching or teaching? Why do I have the gift of encouragement? Why do I have the gift of good works or leadership or what have you? You've been given the gift. Use it to serve one another. Paul says a a similar thing about those uh, special gifts in Ephesians 4 verse 11. He says that Christ gave gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. For what purpose? so that they can get together and have a club and talk about apostleship and prophecy and being a pastor and how great that is or something like that. No, they're given those gifts. They're given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. And I encourage you to go beyond verse 12 and read this picture of full maturity that is to come through the employ of these gifts that God has given. The material point is this. The gifts that God gives to His people are to be used in service to the church. Gifts are given not as a means of self-realization or self-aggrandizement, like, look at me. Look what I can do. Look at my gifts. It's not about building a platform or a career for your particular brand of gifting, but rather the gifts are given as a means of building up the church, as a means of serving other people. They are bestowed for ministry not to enhance self-esteem. Gifts are given primarily to edify others and to build up the church. So when you're thinking of utilizing your gifts in service to Christ and His church, this isn't like your time to shine. It's not like your opportunity to showcase your fantastic and wonderful and altogether unique personality for all of the church to see. It's not like a Myers-Briggs test or, or whatever the one is now. Is it Enneagram? I don't know what that is. But I see people post, oh, I'm an Enneagram 5 or 3. Is it numbers or letters? It's not like your Facebook profile. Like, hey, look at me. If you are thinking primarily about yourself and the exercise of your gift, you're missing the point altogether. The gifts are given so that you would be a servant to the body of Christ, this is one of the reasons I get a little uncomfortable with those spiritual gift inventories. It seems to be about often the fascination with me and who I am and how unique and spectacular I am and how I can then showcase my gifts in the context of the church. That's just totally foreign and alien to the Bible. If you don't have a church, you don't have gifts. If there isn't a church body, there are no spiritual gifts. It's the only reason Christ gives the gifts so that the church might be served and built up in maturity and in godliness and in Christ's likeness. So my brother and my sister, if you are thinking about yourself in the stewardship and exercise of your gifts, you're off the mark. But if you're thinking, here's a way I can bless my brothers and sisters. Here's a way I can plug into a manual church and provide help. Here's some things God has taught me and gifts he's given to me that I can, I can use in faithful stewardship to bless my brothers and sisters among the body of Christ. You are exactly where the Lord wants you to be in your thoughts about gifts. I so appreciate what John Brown has said on this passage. I think it crystallizes some of those things I said a little less succinctly. He says, these gifts then are not to be considered as conferred only or chiefly for the advantage of the individual on whom they are bestowed. They are intended for the good of the whole, and the gifted person is in the exercise of his gift not to act as an independent proprietor, seeking his own advantage and doing what he wills with his own, but as a good steward. Each one ought to exercise his gift and perform the duties of his office, not to secure personal influence, not to gratify personal vanity, or to promote personal interest, but to advance the great interests of the church as a spiritual body and of the individuals constituting its members. We are given gifts to serve one another. Number five, last general observation before considering the particular instructions Peter gives concerning speaking and serving gifts. Number five, very simply, the purpose of these gifts is so that in everything Christ, excuse me, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The purpose of these gifts is so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. According to this passage, we exercise our gifts, verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which means, brothers and sisters, in the exercise of my gifts, my eye is on His glory, not mine. My eye is on His kingdom, not mine. My eye is to be on Christ being exalted, not on me being exalted. It's all about God getting glory through His church and through His people. If we are not preoccupied with glorifying God and serving the church in the exercise of our gifts, we're missing the mark entirely. If you have been given a gift, brother, sister, And if you are a brother or sister, you have been given a gift. You are given that gift to employ in service to the church and to bring glory to God, to whom alone belong glory and dominion. It would be probably two years ago, I had the joy of inviting a former pastor of mine. His name's Bill Hughes. He's one of these just delightful old Englishmen, and he was that generation of like Lloyd-Jones and all those, you know, guys, and he's younger than Lloyd-Jones, but he came and he didn't preach that Sunday, but we interviewed him in the, uh, a quick class. I don't think he told this story then. Uh, I remember hearing it as a boy and it's, it's always stuck with me. He had, I th- it was either in his study or in his bedroom. Uh, his wife or someone had made him this, this sort of placard. And as he, I think it was in his bedroom, as he'd walk out of his bedroom in the morning, and he's a pastor, he had given the gifts to shepherd the flock, and just had four words, for them, for Him." I think that should be written over all of our hearts, all the gifts that God has given to us. We have them for them and for Him. We live, we work, we serve, we breathe for them, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the flock of God, and for Him, the Lord Jesus, to whom belong all dominion and all glory those are the five general observations about gifts. Each believer has received a gift from God, number two, the source of gifts is the grace of God, number three, gifts are a stewardship from God, number four, gifts are to be used in service to the body of Christ, and number five, the purpose of these gifts is so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now consider with me, secondly, two specific instructions regarding gifts. Peter then focuses his attention to specific categories of gifts and instructions regarding those categories of gifts. Now, among the passages that talk about gifts, I mentioned before Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, those passages actually list numbers of the gifts that are given. Things like encouragement, exhortation, hospitality, works of charity and benevolence, uh, more spectacular gifts like gifts of healing and prophecy and tongues. Uh, gifts of preaching and teaching. All kinds of gifts are listed, Romans 12, 3 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, and even in Ephesians 4 as well. But Peter here in 1 Peter 4, I think he's just working with two broad categories of gifts, whoever speaks and whoever serves. So, speaking gifts and serving gifts. So, I just want to look more narrowly at Peter's specific instructions for each one for those who are giving gifts to speak those who are given gifts to serve. First of all, let's consider whoever speaks. Whoever speaks. And we read in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Speaking here in 1 Peter 4.11 need not narrowly refer to those who preach. The word that is used is a very broad and general word for speaking. It's not Uh, one of the typical words that is used for the narrow work of preaching and teaching, it's more general speech. So, I believe Peter could have in mind speaking gifts more broadly that include activities that are outside the narrow arena of the pastoral office, gifts such as evangelism, encouragement, exhortation, the communication of wisdom and knowledge, etc. That said, I believe the gift of preaching would have been prominent in Peter's mind, in fact, probably foremost uh, in his mind. So, I think Peter envisions people who have been given the gift to communicate and to speak under the edification and building up of God's people, both publicly and privately. Most narrowly, that would be the work of preaching and teaching, but it could also include other speaking gifts such as private exhortation, encouragement, giving a word of wisdom or knowledge. What Peter is most concerned about, though… Above the precise manifestation of the speaking gift, what exact kind of speaking is happening, what he's concerned more about is the content of the speech itself. When one stands to speak for the edification and building up of the body, what is he saying? What is the content? That's Peter's concern, and we see here Peter is concerned that those who exercise speaking gifts are to speak the oracles of God or the words of God. The one who speaks is not to seek to edify and build up the congregation through his own wisdom, his own charisma, his own opinions and conjectures. No, if one is to speak, let him speak the very words of God, logia theu, logia, logos, word, theu, God, the Word of God, the oracles of God, the revelation of God. Let him bring the truth of God to bear upon the people of God. This means those who are given the gift to preach and teach are to make the content of divine revelation the subject of their communications to the church. It would mean also those with lesser speaking gifts like giving a word of exhortation to a brother or sister or bringing a word of wisdom and discernment in a smaller group setting, they are also to bring God's Word to bear on people's lives not some vague or spontaneous impression based on the impulse of the moment and what you think the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Rather, we are to bring in our speaking gifts the revelation of God, the oracles of God, the very Word of God to one another. Now, I want to apply Peter's words here now and the rest of this point more narrowly to preaching in particular, because I do think that is Peter's main concern. What are the implications of Peter's words here for those who would preach. So, let me say this. Let us be sure we understand what the work of preaching is and what role and function it plays within the body of Christ. The man who would stand up to preach and to teach is called of God to speak His oracles, His revelation, God's revelation, God's Word. The man comes not to speak of his own theories or conjectures or opinions. He's not to come unprepared with some sloppy presentation that only lightly grazes on the corners of the truth. No, preaching is to be a thus saith the Lord exercise, and there's a certain seriousness and sobriety that should accord that kind of exercise in the context of the worship of God. The preacher stands as a herald. He stands as an ambassador, as a representative of the God who is, and he announces and proclaims God's revealed will from his word to his people. That's the role of the new covenant preacher, and that is what should be demanded of him. Brother, you tell us what God has said, or else you sit down and we'll find someone else who will. The Lord prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3.15 that one of the things He was going to do in the New Covenant is that He was going to give shepherds to His flock. They weren't going to be like the false shepherds of Israel. These shepherds were going to feed God's people on knowledge and understanding. They were going to feed God's people on the pure milk of His Word. They were going to lead God's people to the lush green pastures where they could eat and have their fill of what God had revealed through His Word. And there is a harrowing passage in Jeremiah chapter 23 where the Lord basically confronts the false shepherds of Israel, those who did not faithfully preach His Word. There we read, Jeremiah 23, just two verses, 21 and 22, this is what the Lord said about the false shepherds of Israel, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in My counsel, then they would have proclaimed My words to My people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds." God is after men who are called of God, qualified according to the Bible, and recognized by the church to preach His words to His people. The man of God who stands to preach dare not utter his own words. He dare not speak to God's people except that which he has heard and has understood by standing in the counsels of the Lord, by studying and knowing God's Word. The man who stands to preach is there on a divine mission to tell people what God has said and when he has done that, when he has fulfilled his sacred errand, he is to sit down and he's not to stand back up again until he's ready to say something more about what God has revealed in his word. And let's be clear, when Peter says that one who speaks is to speak the oracles of God, he's not talking about something unspecific or undesignated or something God has said to this man outside of the Bible that he's then to proclaim to the people. Y'all, I would just urge you to be cautious of the man who says, well, God spoke to me. God said to me, and I'm saying this to you now, don't bother opening up your Bibles. God said to me, and here it is for you. If God speaks at all, He speaks to us through His Word, and He speaks to us through His Son who is the living Word. There is specific content that the preacher is to bring to God's people. There are particular pastures where he is to lead them. It's in the pages of Scripture. It's in the Word of God. He is to feed them on the oracles of God or the Word of God. He is to open it up. He to explain it. He to apply it. And he is to help the people of God to understand it. That's his errand. And woe to the man who would stand up to speak and editorialize on the spot or play fast and loose with the text or pass over things that he fears will cause offense, or who is selective in his preaching in order to court popular opinion and popular sensitivities, or who has a a desire to scratch itching ears. the man of God is to bring out the Bible, as Ezra was called to do. And he's to do this because this is what the people of God need. If he is to speak, he's to speak the oracle's of God. If his errand is to feed the Lord's flock on knowledge and understanding, he cannot do it by any other means except by opening the Bible. The Word of God alone is said to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Only in the Bible do we have the words of God, and that is what our souls need, therefore that is what preachers are called to give, not cultural commentary, not political rhetoric, not you know, nice stories and jokes, or a day in the life of the pastor and his family, not humanistic self-help, but only that which is the very lively Word of God. Let him who speaks speak the oracles of God. If I could just be candid for a minute, friends, I'm basically telling you as awkward as it is my job description as one of your pastors, but not just my job description, the job description of anyone who we would put in this pulpit to preach the word of God to you. And if the day comes when I stop fulfilling that job description in a way that the Bible would sanction and commend, you're to fire me. You're to come to me and to try to help me see better. But if I don't preach the words of God, you fire me. Or you go to Pastor Ben and Pastor Lightchild and say something's wrong with Alex, you got to talk to him. Similarly, if we put men in this pulpit that don't have a sense of the seriousness and the sobriety of what it means to preach the Word of God to the people of God, who only have the faintest, most superficial notions of what it is to preach. Men who are silly-hearted and jovial and think this is just sort of a casual kind of affair. You come to us and you tell us that. We have a sacred stewardship from God to steward the work of preaching within the gathered worship of God. I, I preached on the subject of preaching back in January. And I said this then, and I haven't yet thought of a better way to say it, but the reality is in some ways the sheep, the people of God, create the market for preaching. And if you're content with silly stories, and if you're content with humanistic philosophies, and if you're content with cultural commentary and political rhetoric, well, then people will bring that to you. But if you demand of the men who stand before you, we want the Bible. We're hungry sheep, and we insist on being led into knowledge and understanding, and that's your job, shepherd of the sheep, well, then you will faithfully have pastors year by year, decade by decade, generation by generation, who will engage in that very kind of work. What I'm trying to say is you have a part to play in this. Certainly the one who would stand up to preach has a part to play. The one who would speak must speak the oracles of God, but you brothers and sisters must require this of Him. Let's consider now, secondly, Peter's words to those who serve, those who serve. We read after the instructions to those who would speak, he says, then, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Again, I don't think Peter is isolating a particular gift, but is more presenting a certain category of gifts. That's my opinion. I could be wrong, but I I think I'm right. Gifts of service could include works of mercy and benevolence, hospitality, giving to those in need, and other such gifts. Their aim, these gifts of service, is to meet the practical needs of the body. And again, Peter's focus is not on enumerating the various gifts of service, but rather on showing us how these gifts are to be carried out. And Peter tells us that the employment of gifts of service will require strength. And this strength must be strength that God supplies, which is what we would expect, right? If our gifts are given to us as a stewardship by the grace of God, we would expect He's going to have to give the grace and the strength and the help to sustain those gifts of service in the body of Christ. What we learn here, brothers and sisters, is that God Himself is ready to supply strength for the gifts of service within the church. So you, brother, sister, have the gift of hospitality. God has enabled you in a special way to make your home a harbor and a haven for needy people. Well, you're going to need a lot of strength to carry out that gift and to serve in accord with that gift that God has given you. What this passage is saying is God's ready to supply grace, and and you should have the expectation I can carry on this work in service to my brothers and sisters through the grace that God supplies Perhaps you have the gift of showing mercy and benevolence. God has just gifted you in an extraordinary and exceptional way to do good to others and to meet practical needs. Well, in order to spend your life in the exercise of that gift, you're going to need strength to do it. Who could just lay themselves out for other people week by week and on to this way of service, that way of service, making a meal for this person, seeking to help that young mom, and seeking to go and visit saints in the hospital? These acts of benevolence and kindness, what this passage says is you can carry on, you are to carry on those gifts in a way that pulls on the strength that God is ready to give. God will supply you, brother or sister, with grace in the exercise of your gifts of service. Perhaps God has gifted you with great resources whereby you can contribute financially to the material needs of the saints. Well, you're going to need strength and help and grace and wisdom and how to carry out those gifts. The point is, for those who are given these gifts, there is strength needed and strength ready to be given, strength ready to be supplied to those who serve, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I just want to commend this to some of you, everybody's given different gifts. Um, All of us in some sense are required to serve, right? But some of us are given sort of extraordinary gifts of service. I just want to commend to you the supreme value of gifts of service within the body of Christ. I think when people think about spiritual gifts, this is one of the ways we get off the track. We think primarily in terms of public gifts. I think that's a mistake. Actually most of the spiritual gifts in the Bible are exercised privately. Like, what I mean by that is not on a platform like this, not with a microphone in front of your face, not with a a crowd of people around you or something like that. Most of the gifts are exercised in fairly ordinary and mundane ways because the church of God is built up often in ordinary and mundane ways. And I just want to commend to some of you. I think there are among many of you extraordinary gifts of service. And I don't want you to view those gifts as cheap. God gives the gifts of service to build up the body of Christ And if He has gifted you in a special way to do good and to meet the practical needs of your brothers and sisters, you should think, this is a calling from God. This is a great and marvelous work that God has given me to do. And there are people who build these careers and build a lifetime of serving God's people through meeting practical needs. It's one of the most needed things in the kingdom of God. And it is one of the most powerful things in terms of advancing the evangelistic mission of the church. That when they look inward at the community of God, they see people that are laying themselves out for one another, serving one another, employing the gifts and graces that God has given them through the strength that He supplied to serve the body of Christ. And so I just want to encourage some of you, think, have lofty thoughts about these gifts. Think highly, God has called me to serve. What gifts has He given me? What can I do to contribute to the health and the life of this body through the gifts of service that God has given. I need to close because time is gone. I had wanted to say more about the benediction. At the end of verse 11, we read there that these gifts are to be exercised, speaking gifts, serving gifts. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The audience to whom Peter is writing, we think in the early 60s A.D., had to have been a very unimpressive audience, and what I mean by that is they were exiles scattered throughout Asia Minor in these different places. The Christian movement circa 60 A.D. would not have been an impressive movement. And it's clear from what Peter writes, they're living in a world that is not their home. They're living in a world that is hostile to them. This group would have appeared pathetic to the world. This group was being slandered, we read. We read that they're being maligned. We read that they're being persecuted and enduring trials. They're being spitefully used. They're being abused in various ways. Would not have been an impressive group. Would not have had a lot of cultural capital and clout. And yet Jesus writes to them in the confidence that their Savior, their Lord, the one who had caused them to be born again to a living hope, to Him belong all glory and dominion. How that would have dazzled them. How spectacular that would have seemed. This small sect of unimpressive people, a bunch of misfits and outcasts, brought together people who had lived in the world, who had committed all kinds of sins, now they've been saved and born again, they're to live no longer in the passions of their flesh, they're to live for the will of God, and they're united in these little pockets of people, in these little bands of Christians, very much like this little band of Christians. Y'all, in the world's eyes, we're an unimpressive people. We're not much in the world's eyes, and the Christian movement can at times seem small and insignificant. It could seem like we're up against so much. It could seem like the world is so great and so hostile. It could seem like Satan is gaining ground. It could seem like the church is just in pieces. We should still have the confidence that Peter had, that God is working through His church to bring all glory to His Son Jesus Christ, and to Him, though it might not Look like it from the vantage point of right now, whatever you're going through, whatever confronts the church of Jesus Christ in our day, right now to Him belong all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How that would have sustained these people, how that would have filled them with hope and expectation for what God can do through His church, what God can do through us, what God is building in this seemingly unimpressive group of misfits, this group of exiles that He has brought together through the work of His Son. I hope that we too, as we seek to live faithfully as a church, as we seek to exercise our gifts in service to one another and to the glory of Christ, that we would be excited by this vision of this doxology all glory and dominion belongs to Jesus. We win in the end, and that should fill us with vigor and enthusiasm to throw ourselves into the work of God's kingdom and into the work of His church for the good of one another and to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, the work of redemption and the work of grace that you have wrought in each of our lives who are your people and the work that you're doing in your church is a great and glorious thing. Our our impressions and our sense of what you're doing can sometimes be impaired by our own trials and our own sense of sin and our own sense of defeat. We are not able to see everything you're doing at once, but you are building your church you are sustaining your church. You are giving gifts to your church. You are helping your people in every place. You're doing it here, and we thank you. We pray that you would make us to be faithful in our love for one another, that above all, we would continue to love one another earnestly, that we would cover offenses and our sins against one another, that we would show hospitality to each other without grumbling, and that now, Lord, you would help us in the stewardship and administration of the gifts you've given to us to serve one another. May you fill us with your spirit. May you pour out your grace and your gifts to us lavishly. And may this be used of you to bring about the maturation of this body, the growth of this body, the health of this body of your people. We pray that you would give us an eye to the good of your flock and for the building up of your church, and an eye to the glory of God. We pray that we would live ever for them, and for Him. Lord, please help us in these things. Don't allow us to become unduly disheartened and discouraged by the, our failures and by the failures of your church. Help us to see what it is you're working through your bride and through your body. Now, Lord, we pray that you would comfort and encourage us. We pray that our dying Savior's love and that our risen Savior's power, and that our living Savior's prayers and that our coming Savior's glory would be that on which we depend for all of our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.